This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. Listen to this sound. This is an emblematic sound of the Alaskan wild. For me, it's like the howling of the wolf or the cry of the bald eagle. It's something that epitomizes everything that Alaska is about. This is the voice of the sandhill crane. Koyukon Indians who share their interior Alaska homeland with sandhill cranes and have lived around them for many thousands of years call this bird dildula. It's an onomatopoetic word. In other words, it's a word that sounds like what it means. It's the equivalent to the English brr, that word dildula. It's inspired by this remarkable, one-of-a-kind sound of the sandhill crane. I'm not far from the town of Delta Junction in the interior of Alaska. It's about 100 miles down the highway from Fairbanks. This is a major resting stopover for the annual migration of the sandhill cranes. They congregate here every year in early to mid-September. What I'm looking at right now, in addition to some sandhill cranes flying right over my head, oh, their big primary feathers stretched out, their broad wings catching every bit of the sky this morning. I'm looking out across a broad golden hay field. The hay is just ready to be harvested right now. And out in the middle of this field are 2,000 or 3,000 birds. It's a huge mass of birds, all dark bodies scattered through a broad swath of this flat hay field. The bodies of the birds very dark against the bright yellow-brown of the hay that's drying and ready to be picked up. On the other side of this hay field is the forest, a long line of aspen and spruce trees, and out beyond it, glimmering in autumn sunshine is the Alaska Range. Great ridges and walls and snow-covered, glacier-covered, white high peaks of the Alaska Range reaching up into a broken overcast sky on this fairly cool autumn morning. What a place to be in the middle of all this beauty of autumn Alaska, the bright yellow leaves of the aspens, everything redolent with fall, a rich smell of autumn in the air, and cranes all around me. These cranes have been sitting here since last evening, and I'm sort of waiting because I think fairly soon they're going to do their morning takeoff, and we'll wait and see if that happens. The cranes that I'm watching, very tall, stately birds. Their body is probably about the size of a goose, although I'd say to me, it looks more like the lean body of a wild turkey, good-sized birds. One notable characteristic of the sandhill cranes, they've got a rounded stern. If you look at their tail, their tail feathers bend loosely down. It's like a giant tuft or a big bustle. They're standing on their long, skinny black legs, pretty tall birds. They also have a long, narrow neck. It makes the cranes look lanky and gangly. 
They also have a long, black, very sharply pointed beak. The adults are almost three feet tall, so very good-sized birds, and they're great broad wings as I see another group of birds flying over here. Wingspan of six feet or more. Awesome, elegant birds in flight. The adults are ashy gray or slaty gray color, very white cheeks, and then an interesting characteristic, a bald reddish patch on the forehead. Just bare skin. Very interesting thing about it is the blood vessels can flush under there to intensify the reddish color of that forehead patch, and it's a signal of aggression to another crane or to an approaching predator. Koyukon Indians, they tell an ancient sacred creation story. When volleys of arrows were being shot at an ancestral sandhill crane, he deflected those arrows with his forehead. This is why the crane has a featherless red crown on its head. Well, young sandhill cranes look different. They don't have this same more uniform ashy gray color. They are mottled brown and they don't get that scarlet forehead until they're adults. You can hear the voices of the younger cranes, that high-pitched cheeping or peeping sound mixed in with the clattering of the older cranes as they fly overhead. Sandhill cranes nest here in Alaska in the bogs and the muskegs and they preen their feathers with mud that's very rich in iron oxide and that mud paints their feathers a reddish brown color. So overlaying that slaty gray color of their feathers is this reddish brown color and that's how they get it. It helps to camouflage the nesting cranes out there in the bogs and the muskegs during the summertime. Cranes are also extremely wary, sharp-eyed birds. They're very hard to approach and that's why I'm being extremely careful as I stand here at the edge of this meadow. I've got a screen of brush right in front of me. I can see the cranes very clearly but hopefully they're not going to see me because if they do they're going to take to the air sooner than I'd like. They're very fast runners incidentally. I can see two cranes running along right now. Three cranes actually running just briefly and then stop. They look sort of awkward when they run but actually they're very very fast. They can easily outrun a human. They need that speed because sometimes they're using it to run around after small prey that they catch out there in the open. Some of the cranes are out there. I can see them now sort of preening themselves with their long beaks. Two of them flapping their wings. Several of them actually doing a, a little version of the sandhill crane dance. I'll tell you about that a little bit later. Sandhill cranes incidentally are often confused with another large Alaskan bird that looks very similar. That's the great blue heron. That's a tall gray long-legged long-necked bird like the cranes here. Blue herons live along the coast of Alaska from the Kenai to southeast whereas the sandhills are more of an interior and a northern bird. The sandhill crane easily distinguished from the great blue heron because it flies with the neck outstretched as I described to you a few minutes ago whereas the heron when it flies keeps its neck tucked back in an S-shape while it flies. The heron also has a very different voice from the one you're hearing right now. It's a hoarse croaking sound, nothing at all like these trumpeting cranes. Oh my goodness. Big batch of cranes. Flying overhead. When they fly, they tend to organize themselves into a V-shaped flock, much like geese. And there's great blue herons are also a much more solitary bird. You wouldn't see thousands of them like I've got out here in the meadow in front of me now. The sandhill crane's very keen eyesight is also important not just for self-defense but also for pecking at its food. Sandhills will dig roots or bulbs with that beak. They'll eat leaves and seeds and berries. In fact, in the Koyukon Indian language, the bog cranberry, that 
very common red berry that you see out in the muskegs is called bildul baba. That means crane's food. And I'm sure that the Koyukon people for a long time have watched the cranes out there pecking those individual little berries. Very accurate with that beak. They'll also spear insects, earthworms, small birds, lemmings, voles, frogs. Cranes also make good use of farmlands here in Alaska and down in the lower 48, especially at this time of year during their migration or in their spring migration heading north. Here in the fields around Delta Junction, they're eating barley, they're eating wheat. They'll also eat waste grain in cattle pastures. Some of the farmers, of course, will complain about cranes eating this stuff, also pulling the newly planted crops in the springtime. On the other hand, they also eat the seeds of damaging weeds and waste grain that could compete with the next year's crops, and they hunt rodents and insects that can do damage to farm fields. So on balance, maybe it equals out, but then you add in the beauty of these birds and this amazing sound that they make, and I'd have to say that the balance weighs on the positive side for sandhill cranes. Well, there are 15 species of cranes found worldwide, and they're all big, spectacular birds like these sandhills. There's just one other species of crane in North America. That's the huge white whooping crane. It's one of the rarest birds anywhere in the world. In fact, some decades ago, the population of whooping cranes was down to about 20 birds known to exist anywhere. Now, the total population is still very small, less than 350 birds, but a great recovery thanks to protecting the habitat of the cranes, popularizing people's knowledge of them so people know not to hunt for these birds. So through this protection, their numbers are slowly increasing. An interesting thing about sandhill cranes is that fossils nearly identical to these birds that we're watching out here date, according to the fossil remains, back to 10 million years ago. Makes this possibly the world's longest surviving species of birds. Especially interesting in that regard is the fact that sandhill cranes almost didn't make it because during the last century they were headed for extinction. Overhunting and loss of the wetlands where they live and breed was the reason. By 1930, for example, there were less than 25 breeding pairs of sandhill cranes in the entire state of Wisconsin. Then came protection from hunting, then came preservation of the remaining wetlands that they needed. It saved those birds, and in fact, in 1990, there were over 11,000 sandhill cranes counted in the state of Wisconsin and parts of the adjoining states. Today's sandhill cranes, are one of the most successful and abundant crane species anywhere in the world, with a total population of more than 650,000 birds. Well, we've got quite a bunch of them out here in the meadow right now, apparently completely unaware of me, still, most of them still resting calmly, another group just flying in, sort of setting their wings and sailing down, dropping those long legs, and kind of running to a stop, joining into one of the flocks of cranes out here well, sandhill cranes live throughout most of the United States and Canada. They're also found over in eastern Russia on the Siberian side and down into northern Mexico. So they're quite a widespread species of bird. There are two distinct groups of sandhill cranes found here in Alaska. One is part of what is called the mid-continent population. Those birds nest on the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta here in the interior of Alaska and along the western and northern coast of the state. They're by far the largest group. There are about 200,000 of those sandhill cranes in Alaska. The total number 
of the mid-continent population of sandhill cranes is huge, about 500,000 birds. Now these Alaskan sandhills from the mid-continent population will winter in the southwestern United States and down in northern Mexico, along with other cranes from this same population that come from Siberia, about 50,000 birds crossing the Bering Strait into North America, and also cranes from Canada belong to that mid-continent population of sandhills. Now the second group of sandhill cranes is called the Pacific Flyway population. It's much smaller in numbers, only about 20 to 25,000 here in Alaska. Those birds nest in another part of the state, around Bristol Bay, the Alaska Peninsula, Cook Inlet, and a few in southeastern Alaska. Those cranes winter in a different area too, down in the Central Valley of California. There's a darn good chance that you're going to hear a sandhill crane long before you see it. The unmistakable, otherworldly bugling of the sandhill crane, it'll carry for a mile or more, well, actually quite a bit more than a mile, over the muskegs and meadows and forest. It echoes between the riverbanks here in Alaska, it drifts up along the mountainsides, and on this autumn morning, it swells up from the farmlands around Delta Junction. In a wonderful book called Living on the Wind, which is about bird migration, the author Scott Widensall explains the sandhill crane's prodigious voice. He says this, sandhill cranes are among the loudest birds in the world. Their secret is coiled like a snake inside their chest. Rather than simply connecting the lungs to the outside world, an adult crane's trachea or windpipe loops along the breastbone, forming a tube that if stretched out is almost as long as the bird itself. It's like the voice of a human resounding through a metal pipe as it passes through the coil, and the bony rings of the trachea, which are fused to the breastbone, make the whole apparatus vibrate during vocalization, amplifying the resonant calls and adding harmonics, which is just what we're hearing right now. These are the classic calls of the Sandhill Train. And another amazing thing about this call, often it's not just one crane, but two that you're hearing. They're doing what's known as a unison call. It's made by a mated male and female, performing a very complex, carefully orchestrated, synchronized duet. The female bird is the one who starts the call. She usually makes two notes for every one given by the male. If you listen closely, I don't know, maybe you can pick it out, I'm not sure I can. Cranes do this, especially during the late winter and early spring, when they're starting to pair and get ready for the mating season, but they also do it at other seasons, like right now in the fall time, to reinforce the bond, the love bond, the romance bond, the mating bond between the male and female. Sandhill cranes also make a couple of other calls. One is a soft purring sound. It's almost like a low growl. They do this just to keep in contact with each other, or to keep in touch with their chicks. For example, when they're in tall grass and they can't see each other, they'll use that contact call. And then there's a warning call. It's the one that I hope not to hear. They use it to caution each other of danger nearby. And as some of these cranes fly in overhead, I'm keeping very still down here in my little hideaway in the brush. Another sound that you're hearing as we listen to these cranes is that high-pitched kind of peeping, cheeping sound. And again, that's the chicks that were born this year, a very different voice from the adults. Not only is the sandhill crane a great, large, spectacular looking bird that fills up our world with these amazing sound, 
Beyond that, sandhill cranes also dance. They're famous for doing an exuberant courtship dance. It reaches its peak in late winter and early spring again as the mating season approaches, but it also happens at other seasons like right now when two cranes meet each other and they do this thing. It's a beautiful exotic ritual performance. It's made up of boughs and great springing leaps that are accompanied by pumping heads and enormous flapping wings. Repeated and repeated. It can go on for many minutes. If you've ever seen a film of this or if you've seen it with your own eyes as I did just a little while ago, it is an extraordinary thing to witness. Koyukon people sometimes sing to the cranes, something they've learned over the generations. And they say that if you do that once in a while, the cranes will start to dance in response to your song. So you might want to try that out. Well, perhaps it's because they're inspired by that dance. Perhaps it's the trumpeting duets, this glorious sound they make. For whatever reason, sandhill cranes, once they get together, they mate for life. So they're a monogamous, lifelong marriage ideal, very much like our own. They also will return that pair of sandhill cranes to the same nesting places year after year. They come soaring into the Alaskan skies around early to mid-May, announcing themselves with their bugling, clattering calls, and what a joy it is for all of us to hear it. The cranes are back. Usually they've flown north with one or two of their young from the previous year, but it's not going to be a happy homecoming for those youngsters because shortly after they return to the nesting grounds, the parents will drive their chicks from last year away. That's it. They're on their independent life from now on. The adults do this because they are going to claim an exclusive territory around their nesting place, and they're going to keep all other sandhill cranes, including their own offspring, away from that place. They can be pretty darn aggressive about it. If the posturing threats and calls don't work, they get into fights. They leap in the air. They'll rake each other with their sharp claws. They'll stab at each other with their long pointed beaks. The young birds that have been driven away by their parents will then join together in loose flocks and they'll stay together like that for several years until they're old enough to find mates of their own and establish their own territories and start nesting and beginning their families. Cranes nest on muskegs and marshes and on tundra. They make a simple hollow on the ground. It's lined with dry grass and feathers. The female sandhill crane will usually lay two eggs. The male will help her with the incubation, with the feeding and raising of their chicks. Now the first sandhill crane chick that hatches is usually going to be the biggest and strongest one. And it'll often dominate and attack the smaller one. And many, many cases, only that dominant young bird will survive. So only a single chick gets raised. Sometimes both of them manage to stay alive and they grow up together. The chicks can fly after about two months and that's just in time to start this southward migration along with their parents. This is an important thing because the chicks have to learn the migratory route. Unlike some other birds, it's not woven into their genetics. They've got to fly this route in order to know it for the coming years. It's around early August when the sand hills, having finished their nesting, start to become less territorial and begin to socialize with each other again. They feed together, they roost in small groups at night, in open areas, and with the approach of fall, they start congregating into larger and larger flocks until those flocks number into the thousands as they do right now, like this flock that's right out here in the meadow. Eventually, those birds will lift up into the sky. They'll ascend and slowly 
circling columns and they'll dwindle off toward the south. It's one of the great natural events to witness during our Alaska fall. They fly mostly during the day and during clear weather and perhaps that's because as the sun heats the land on those clear fall days, the cranes can set those huge wings and soar on the warm rising thermals that are coming off the warm ground. It saves them a lot of energy to do that. And so these cranes out here may be waiting and usually it's around 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning when they can feel that warmth that they'll rise up often quite abruptly. A huge number of cranes will suddenly in a great clatter of voices start to lift up and begin the daily flights. They'll usually circle and circle and they go higher and higher before they start to move south. They usually fly between 500 feet and a mile above the ground, although some sandhill cranes have been seen as high as 12,000 feet. They gotta do that, for example, if they're crossing the big mountain ranges. They can cover up to about 500 miles in a day, so when these cranes leave here, they may have a pretty long trip ahead of them, and they fly at about 50 miles an hour. There can be thousands of birds in these migratory flocks as we're seeing right now. And as I mentioned, they tend to fly in V formations, a lot like geese. The flight is usually accompanied by a fairly constant exchange of trumpeting calls like the ones we're hearing right now. Some sandhill cranes make a round trip migration of prodigious distances, over 14,000 miles for some of them. Well, as I mentioned, there are two separate populations of sandhill cranes that nest here in Alaska, and they migrate along entirely different routes to their separate wintering grounds. First of all, the cranes from that mid-continental population, they will fly north of the Alaska Range. That's what these birds are now. We're just on the north side of the Alaska Range here. And then they'll stay inland as they continue south, inland from the continental divide. Amazing congregations of these birds can happen here in Alaska. In early May in the springtime and in mid-September in the fall, about 200,000 sandhill cranes fly along the Tanana Valley near Delta Junction, where we are right now up to 50,000 a day at their peak. Imagine that. A smaller group of cranes, around 8,000 of them, will migrate along a different route through the Yukon Flats over near Eagle. Most of these birds will winter in Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and northern Mexico. The other group of cranes, the ones from the Pacific Flyway, those birds will fly along the Alaska coast. They're far less abundant, as I mentioned, and they make stopovers at a few very specific places. The Copper River Delta, Yakutat, Gustavus near Glacier Bay, and the Stikine River Delta. And after that, they will turn inland and fly east of the coastal mountains through British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, ending up at their wintering grounds in Central California. Well, of course, for many thousands of years, hunters have stocked sandhill cranes, especially where they stop over to rest during their spring and fall migrations. I can remember hunting for geese and cranes out in the big bogs and meadows with Wichin and Koyukon people in the interior. The modern village hunters who I was with use shotguns. They conceal themselves in blinds, usually made of piled up meadow grass, and wait for the birds to fly in very low overhead. It's legal to hunt sandhill cranes here in Alaska and in 11 other western states, also in parts of Canada, Mexico, and over in Russia. But not a large number of birds are taken. When you consider the total population of sandhill cranes, 650,000 birds, only about 25,000 sandhills are taken each year by hunters. So the management of this hunting is very conservative and the crane population is stable, or in fact, it may be slowly increasing now. I remember 
a Khan Indian elder man telling me once, he said, I don't like to hunt for cranes. I'd rather just listen to them. And I gotta say, I have no objection to crane hunting and I wouldn't mind tasting one of those big drumsticks again, but I'm like that Khan man. I much prefer to watch and listen to these great soaring, clattering birds and never have I felt that more than I do on this autumn afternoon near Delta Junction. What a sight it is. And I'm wondering when they're gonna to start to get restless and do their mid-morning takeoff. Most of the 15 species of cranes around the world are very much unlike the sandhill cranes. Most of them are seriously imperiled. In fact, some of them are in imminent danger of extinction. This is mainly because cranes live in places that are heavily impacted by people. They're losing the marshes, the swamps, the meadows, the prairies, and the other places where they have made their homes for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Luckily, the sandhill cranes were spared just in time and they're thriving today. Mainly this is because hunting for sandhills is carefully limited. It's also because most sandhill cranes nest up here in the north in very wild country, far from populated areas, in country that's going to stay the same or has stayed the same for a long time. Also because some of the key wintering areas in the more populous parts farther south have been set aside as preserves, recognizing the importance of those lands to sandhill cranes. However, for the future, it's going to be increasingly important that areas where the cranes stop to rest and feed during their migration are protected so the cranes can keep on using them. These are mostly wetlands and sandbar areas along some of the major rivers farther south. For example, 550,000 sandhill cranes stop over along the Platte River in Nebraska every March. The immediate area along the river there is protected, but a lot of those places that they also use are changing. The land is changing, the water levels are changing, the water is dropping because of irrigation and urban uses, so the cranes are more vulnerable there. And those stopover places like that, a majority of the world's population stopping there, it's very important that they be protected. Something is happening right now. Quite abruptly, they were very, very quiet, and now all of a sudden a big clatter and a flapping of wings and maybe a hundred lifting there. Now another hundred coming up. Like a black cloud rising up off the field. And as they rise up, a pandemonium of crane voices flying right over my head. And as they do, they've looked down and seen me. I can hear their feathers whistling other groups coming, some going off to my left, some off to my right. Right straight overhead now. The birds are now circling and joining into these big, long skeins and Vs as they rise higher and higher and as they join together in this great wheeling, outpouring of beauty and sound, thousands of cross shapes in the sky, flapping and then sailing, sharply silhouetted against the sky. And every time they call, when they open their beaks, you can see the bright sky between their beaks, one V after another. The sky is just filled with it. I'm reminded of the accounts from early American history of flocks of 
waterfowl, geese and ducks and passenger pigeons where they rode of the sky being filled with birds and that's what I'm seeing here near Delta Junction in interior Alaska on this autumn afternoon. I just, <laughs> man, I feel like I've died and gone to heaven. For Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. I want to thank you so much for being here. Maybe we should let the cranes have the last word here as another group of them flying right over my head. Okay, let's give it a listen. I'll see you next time. <laughs>